Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The only weapon we have is our bodies, and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. That was the voice of the late Bayard Rustin. Rustin was an activist and organizer in the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. That quote was his elaboration on his famous declaration that every community needs a group of what he called angelic troublemakers. The sentiment was similar to the late John Lewis's call for people to, in his words, get into good trouble. The idea is that those whose cause is righteous should be willing, even at risk to themselves, to nonviolently create trouble for those who would otherwise perpetrate and perpetuate injustice. Some within the Catholic Church seek to be such troublemakers. In fact, Pope Francis has famously urged Catholics to act in that spirit. In his words, quote, A good Catholic meddles in politics, offering the best of himself so that those who govern can govern. End quote. One of my favorite Catholics recently returned to Tatter for his third conversation with me, and we talked about this sentiment of Rustin, Lewis, and Francis. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America, the Jesuit Review. He also was one of three clergy who delivered the benediction at the close of the 2020 Democratic National Convention. Father Jim and I continued our discussion, from my last episode, of what it means to him to be pro-life, in all of its fullness. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, The Seamless Garment Goes On. It's great to have you back. My pleasure. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation we had last time. Me too. Um, I was actually thinking about the fact that you are, unless I'm forgetting someone, you are the second uh, member of the clergy I've had on the podcast. Uh, my friend from Philadelphia, who's a Baptist minister and police officer, um, uh, Lamar Stewart, he's been on twice. Uh, so, But now this is your third visit, so you will surpass him uh, in frequency. So you are, <laughs> I know that you were uh, dubbed the unofficial chaplain of the Colbert Report. I think you're now the unofficial chaplain of Tatter. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, your friend is probably the unofficial police officer. Uh, <laughs> exactly. He has a role, too. <laughs> so um, in the last uh, conversation, we chatted um, um, for about 30 minutes about what it means, uh, at least to you, to be uh, pro-life. And I want to talk uh, a bit more. I, I, as is often the case, I left the conversation thinking, oh, I wish I'd asked this. Oh, I wish I'd asked this. And this is one of those opportunities to come back and ask some of those things. And so I, I, I have some questions that are not about 
what people usually think of when they hear pro-life, but I want to start with what people usually think of when they hear the term pro-life, and that is uh, abortion politics. And this question is, uh, I think, timely in a presidential election year. Uh, And it's a question about the relationship you see between the church on the one hand uh, and um, uh, the political system, government, uh, on the other. And as I understand it, uh, the church clearly has an interest, and I would say it's a self-defining interest, in defending and protecting uh, the sacred. Uh, But I see, at least in a secular democracy, I see government as not having that interest. Rather, governments have to manage competing interests, uh, some of which might be viewed as sacred uh, by some communities, others of which uh, might not be. And and depending on um, uh, the status that one accords uh, to the life inside uh, the womb, abortion politics can bring some interest into conflict. So I, I would say that a legitimate government has an interest in protecting the vulnerable on the one hand, but it also has an interest in uh, protecting the autonomy of consenting adults. And so uh, whereas, whereas there might not be that conflict from the church's perspective, from the perspective of government, there is this conflict that it has to manage. I wonder, first of all, if you agree with all of those premises or if you uh, want to push on any of those. No, I'm smiling because what your listeners can't uh, see, because I think you've just explained it a lot better than I could. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that, that the church is interested, churches and religious people are interested in the sacred, but also in secular things as well, right? Um, that, that we find the sacred in the secular. And you're right. Uh, you're right. I think it's reasonable to say that governments are more interested in secular um, ideas, but also, right? I mean, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means life. So I think it's kind of a porous boundary. Um, but I think that it's it's good that, that the government isn't sort of explicitly uh, defining things in religious terms, right? Because, you know, we're a sort of a pluralistic uh, society, and there are people who are not religious at all, who are agnostic and atheist and who have a full voice and should have a full voice in the public square. And by the same token, I think it's important that the churches don't become too political. So, for example, these days, that means not endorsing candidates, um, but the overlap, I think, is that, um, you know, sometimes if you, if you speak about something that's religious, it's going to have political implications. So to take it out of a, a abortion, if I say we should, also, we should all care for refugees and migrants because they're our brothers and sisters, well, that's going to have some sort of political implications. But I think you're right. I think there, there are kind of two spheres of influence there, government and church. And, and in thinking about the... Uh, the connection between those spheres, I found it interesting to look at a document that uh, I I think I saw you tweet today. This is a contemplation and political action and Ignatian guide to civic engagement. And at one point I noted that the document uh, quotes uh, Pope Francis as saying, quote, a good Catholic meddles in politics. Uh, and so even though the church doesn't endorse candidates, it's certainly it's consistent with this idea that the church is also not apolitical, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually, when I saw that quote by Pope Francis, I thought, wow, that's, you know, he tends to like to mix things up a bit. I don't know. I don't know if, I, if even I would go that far because meddling also has a really bad connotation. But sure, I think, you know, you're involved in, 
uh, in the political world, I mean, the polis, right? Uh, because it's, you know, it's the social world and the church has, I would say this is really important. The church has a voice. I mean, the church shouldn't be the voice, which I think, you know, a lot of people would want it to be. And that's, that's different. That's just not Catholics. That's a lot of Christians in general. When you hear something, I'm always really offended um, as a Christian when I hear something like we're a Christian nation. Right. I mean, that, you know, that kind of stuff I don't think has any place. But, you know, what the Pope is saying is, uh, you know, when you speak about the Gospels and you speak about Jesus and that that can have political implications. So we shouldn't be afraid of that. So, for example, I wouldn't not talk about the poor because I'm afraid that's going to, you know, force, you know, encourage people to vote one way or the other. I, I wish that John Lewis, well, for many reasons, I wish that John Lewis were still alive because I would love for him to have an opportunity to talk with Pope Francis about that Francis quote about meddling on the one hand versus the very famous quote that uh, John Lewis uh, and others have endorsed, which is and Bayard, Bayard Rustin uh, as well, the idea that um, uh, people should get into good trouble. And so I think trouble and meddling may have bad connotations, but within the service uh, of uh, the right end, uh, there are quite noble pursuits. I, I just love that quote. Is it, is it in fact Bayard Rustin? Is it, is it not John Lewis? Was he borrowing or the good I don't, know, I don't know who's borrowing from whom. I've heard them both say it. It's, it's, you know, and it's funny because they're, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very much in the spirit of uh, Pope Francis because, you know, <laughs> both the words, and who knows what it was in Italian or Spanish, both the words meddling and trouble have the same kind of you know, it's, it's playful, but it's also pretty forceful. I mean, yep. you know, John, we, we talked about John Lewis before, you know, one of my heroes. I'm, you know, he got in trouble, right? And it was good. And the Pope does meddle in politics, but it's also, I think part of it is both of them, I think, would, would agree that it's, it's how you do it, right? So, for, for example, John Lewis's, you know, way of doing it was engagement, but always loving his, his enemies. And it's funny, after our podcast, I was reading about, him, uh, you know, forgiving Governor Wallace, yeah. uh, and and you know the, the guy who hit him over the head in Selma, you know that yep. the police officer's name I forget. So so, you know what we think about is trouble, and what Pope Francis thinks about is meddling. You know they have we have to sort of understand how they meant it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I'm sure the scribes and the Pharisees thought uh, that Jesus was a troublemaker as well. But <laughs> yes, exactly. but, but and but, certainly uh, meddling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but going back to uh, abortion uh, politics, uh, at least for a moment, um, but also s uh, starting from something that I saw uh, uh, listed within the same civic engagement uh, document, uh, near the end, it refers to uh, what I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh, as an atheist, I hadn't heard of these, the universal apostolic uh, preferences for, for guideposts for Jesuit ministry. And I won't go through all of them, but the second one um, jumps out at me because it's relevant to a question uh, that I have. And that, that uh, second UAP uh, uh, is an admonition, quote, to walk with the poor, the outcasts of the world, those whose dignity has been violated in a mission of reconciliation and justice. And it jumped out at me because of the reference to dignity, which you also mentioned during our last conversation, where in defining what it is to you to be pro-life, you noted that it's not just about defending person's uh, right to be alive. 
it's all it's also about uh, protecting their dignity. And, and you mentioned this uh, in the context of uh, the threat to dignity faced by George Floyd when he had Derek Chauvin's uh, knee pressed down upon his neck. In, in thinking about dignity and in thinking about the idea that to be pro-life is to defend others' dignity as well as their right to stay alive, I could imagine, and again, I, I want to, as an, as an aside, note the arguable absurdity of two dudes talking about abortion. Yes, but, and also, and a, and a celibate priest talking about you know, <laughs> sexual issues, but so be it. So be it. Uh, but I could imagine uh, a woman, a pro-choice woman, arguing that her dignity is in part predicated upon autonomy over her body. And if that's the case, then to support a ban on abortion could arguably uh, not be pro-life in the sense that it is uh, a threat to uh, the autonomy upon which her dignity is predicated. I wonder what you might have to say to such an argument. I, that's a really powerful argument, and I struggle with that. And I have a lot of uh, women friends and men friends um, who believe that, that it is an assault on their dignity, right, on, on their body. And when we're talking about, you know, if you think about something like um, um, George Floyd or Eric Garner, you know, to go a little further back, we are talking about assaults on their body, right, which is an assault on their person. So, you know, I think, you know, really what I struggle with is, is that, um, you know, important uh, guidepost, right, and that important thing for us to remember, that to, especially women in particular, you know, in terms of rape and, and, and sexual assault and abuse and trafficking, you know, something else that Pope Francis talks about, you know, I've had so many assaults on their body. And I always have to say to my women friends and my men friends, but look, that does not, what, what I, I frame it more positively, positively for me, that does not mean that I think that what is within them is any less life. That's, that's how I frame it. Right. And so they're, they're competing they're competing views, basically. So in other words, while I'm certainly against assaults on women's bodies, I, I can't get away from the fact that I view that, you know, the, the, what's the unborn child of the womb is, is, is life, right? So that, that's where I have to leave it uh, because I'm really, I struggle with that. I really do because I think, you know, and also the, 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 way, that, the way that men in particular have told women what to do with their bodies. So for me, those two things coexist the 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 recognition that women have been assaulted in that way but again i can't i'm i can't deny that what i see within them is life you know and that's why i think it's so difficult for policymakers right for right. for politicians and that's why i think the church is is at its best um when it when it proposes uh you know when it helps people to see for example from my point of view that 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 is a life with inside the woman um, you know, as Pope Francis says, I go back to this so often that the church's form is called to form consciences, not replace them. Right. And so I think that the in my own small way, I think that, you know, one of my goals is to help people see the sanctity of all life. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of ironic because I think many people, if not most people, have know what the Catholic Church teaches about abortion. And but. And they've sort of made up their mind on abortion, truly. I think that most people in the United States have made up their mind about abortion, you know, within certain limits. 
I think that the leading edge is when you talk about things like um, Eric Garner and George Floyd. That's where I think that, you know, in a sense, the people are people are being introduced to that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, to say that these are life issues is is harder for people um, and refugees and migrants. So, you know, yeah. trying to expand that understanding of what what pro-life means uh, I think is is actually more difficult in those arenas because people really, I'll tell you, people really get upset. They get upset on, well, like, people get upset in general these days. Yeah. But when you introduce the life of the black man, right? Not just the unborn child. They 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 can't accept it, and you say, well, you know, all the terrible things. Say, oh well, you know, he's guilty. Look, you know, even the inmate on death row. Right. One of my closest friends was the prison chaplain at San Quentin. You know, yeah. and he, these are like serial killers. Even their lives are sacred. So part of what I struggle with when I think about what I understand to be church teaching mm-hmm. is that while the defense of dignity that I see as central to your pro-life stance resonates strongly with me. Mm-hmm. When I when I think about the beings in whom dignity uh, inheres, mm-hmm. I think of them as persons. Mm-hmm. And for me, and I think some philosophers uh, have made an argument like this as well. For me, personhood requires a set of experiences that, say, um, uh, a fertilized uh, ovum has not yet had. Mm -hmm. And while I would never deny uh, that biologically that fertilized ovum Mm -hmm. is alive, it is a Mm -hmm. life, Mm -hmm. uh, it seems difficult to me to to uh, accept the idea that that is a person and that a fertilized ovum has dignity and so mm-hmm. and so for me to if if to be pro life is is to defend those persons that have dignity mm. there there would be a line that uh, uh, the the immigrant is on the is on one side of having had a life of experiences and mm-hmm. and having ambitions and hopes and dreams um, but the fertilized ovum would be on the other side of that line. But it sounds as if that way of thinking, is it fair to say, and, I, and I'm not going to try to, obviously I'm not going to try to persuade you, but is it fair to say that, that that way of thinking, insofar as I've clearly articulated it, is at odds with church teaching? That is to say, church teaching doesn't simply defend those persons in my terms who uh, have accumulated a set of experiences and have hopes and ambitions it it's defending life all the way down, even prior to those persons who I would think of as having dignity or, or yeah. would the argument be that say there is dignity in the, in the fertilized ovum? Yeah. Yeah. And first of all, again, I, I really appreciate the way you frame these things. You're really, I wish I'd taken your class. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's basically this it's yeah, because the question is who gets to draw where the line is. Right. And so if you say personhood, then you start to say, well, what about the, you know, I was reading today about someone who was uh, induced into a coma because of COVID, right? Um, well, what about the person in the coma? What about the person who's 
And then you start to get into like euthanasia and then you start to get into, you know, we've seen in Western Europe, well, you know, people who are depressed, they, they, don't feel, they don't feel like they really have lives that are worth living. And so you move from quickly from personhood, which is a legitimate thing to think about, right? Like kind of agency and what makes a person. I mean, those are reasonable things to think about to what, what lives have value, what lives have, then you get into like quality of life. And then, so, so the church basically says it's in favor of all life, right? Because all life, it, it comes from, it comes from God. So the line is drawn, you know, all the way to the beginning of life. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's about life per se, which is, you know, then you really broaden it out. Uh, and then you talk about in, in Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si about the environment, uh, a reverence for all living creatures, right? Then it really kind of expands things. You know, every creature is sacred and all you know, he's just like, even like the smallest insect, you know, has a kind of dignity and a kind of worth. But yeah, I mean, the problem with, you know, uh, the, the way you were, um, or what I would disagree with the way you were, you were constructing, which is a reasonable thing to think about is who gets to decide what personhood is. So for example, uh, if you were talking about a, a seventh, seven month old child in the womb, right? A seventh month old fetus, you might not say that that has the requirements for personhood, right? I don't think it could, I'm, I'm not a biologist, but I don't think it could think outside of the womb and all that. But you would certainly say that that's life, right? And people would, oh, yeah. people would be pretty horrified. So it's, it's the question of who gets to draw that line. And then once we start drawing the line, then, you know, all sorts of people can be seen as, less than human, right? And that's, you know, there we go, the problem with, you know, the African-American slave being three-fifths, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's the danger. And I think that's actually wise for the church to, to, to sort of argue for all human life being, being sacred. Um, and I know not everybody agrees with that, but for me, that's very consistent. So, so just to jump in with a general question sure. that, go, that goes beyond abortion, but still connects with this concept of church teaching. Um, so from you a Catholic to me a non-Catholic, tell me, can church teaching change? Oh, it, it can and it does. I mean, on a lot of topics, uh, you know, for example, I think the most important, uh, well, one of the most important is slavery. I mean, you know, church, you know, look at, you look at, you look at the New Testament and Paul talks about, you know, slaves be uh, obedient to your masters. I mean, you can't get more blunt than that. And the church, you know, obviously over time, the church reflects on that. And then obviously the church is against slavery and trafficking and all those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, it, it can and it should change because as we come to understand more about the human person, it should change. So what's, what's the role, what's the role uh, then of lay people, not just lay people within the church, the church laity, but even non-Catholics. That is, what's the role of, of just everyday people from the ground up uh, informing church teaching as opposed to uh, hierarchical um, uh, changes from the top down? Another great question. I would say two things. Number one, simply informing them, right? And so, you know, when the hierarchy or when theologians and uh, 
you know, people in the Vatican are, are thinking about issues. For example, one of the leading edges, I mean, this is really leading edge, is transgender uh, issues. Okay, now, the people in the Vatican and the U.S. bishops are simply not experts in transgender people. They're not. Okay, and I know for a fact that they are listening to transgender people. So there's, that's the first that's the first way, which is which is literally educating the church because we're not experts, right, on on all these different things. To put it in a less um, contentious area, you know, if the church is, for example, uh, their migrants and refugees section in the Vatican, you know, they listen to people from the the UN High Commission for Refugees, right? They listen to people from Lutheran World Foundation. They listen to people from the Jesuit Refugee Service. You know, they're listening to experts. Like, what do we need, right? Now, from a more theological perspective, uh, the, the Christian belief and the church believes that the Holy Spirit is also at work in these people, right? And so the Holy Spirit is not just kind of working top down, right? It's not just Pope Francis coming up with an inspiration and saying, oh, I want to do this. This is one of the reasons Pope Francis has called these things called synods uh, recently, because the Spirit is alive in the people, right? I mean, in the grassroots. And so, the, so, there's, so there's two, so, so one is the kind of, practical educational role that the lady have experts, right? Which, you know, how can we not listen to them? And then the other is a kind of theological um, appreciation of the Holy spirit at work in, in lay people and in, you know, not, not the Pope and not the bishops. So this question reflects my own naivete, but following on that, I wonder if there is to your knowledge um, instances in which the church and in particular, uh, the church hierarchy has listened to uh, women who have had abortions uh, to hear their stories, to, to understand, uh, because the Holy Spirit is alive in them as well. And so to understand what led them uh, to that decision. Yes, they have. Uh, you know, that has not changed the church's approach to it. Uh, it's interesting. What an interesting question, because usually what happens is so the answer is yes because uh number one they they do that in you know kind of i would say more official roles but also um priests and bishops here from women who have had abortions uh, just just coming in contact with them right i mean i for example know women who've had abortions so and, I'm, and, and again and to be clear i'm not talking about taking confession oh sure no i know you're not right uh so it's it's that kind of dialogue that happens i think just you know in in the west um, you know, it, it's, it would almost be impossible not to have that kind of dialogue with women or with, you know, men who support it. But the church is uh, more likely to have a kind of, and this, you can think this is good or bad, is, is more likely to have a kind of pastoral role in, for example, counseling women who have had abortions, right? So that's usually what, what's going on. But I think your questions are really important. The, the church never stops learning, and the church, you know, the the, de- the old definition of theology, which you probably know, is faith seeking understanding, right? So it's so 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 in all these questions, we're supposed to be listening to people. So I'm a Jesuit, as you know, and as your listeners know by now, uh, the Jesuits were founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, a Spanish saint, uh, in 1541. Uh, And so our spirituality is 
is often called Jesuit or Ignatian, I-G-N-A-T-I-A-N, Ignatian spirituality. What's called Ignatian contemplation is one of the ways that he liked to pray, which is to imagine yourself in a scripture scene, simply put. Uh, and that trust that God can work through your imagination. And, you know, really everyone does this. I mean, when you go to church and you hear the story about Christ stilling the sea or, you know, healing, you know, uh, the paralyzed man, you know, you're imagining it basically. I mean, everybody has that kind of imagination and it's taking it one step further by, you know, kind of praying that way and putting yourself in the scene and essentially seeing what comes up. What are your reactions to the scene and trusting that sometimes, you know, God can raise up a reaction, you know, that can be really a way of encountering God. So that's Ignatian contemplation. It's, it's pretty, you know who it's actually, I've actually had a lot of success with it, um, uh, is, is actors, you know, because actors are used to kind of imagining themselves and this, this sort of method acting. And I've done it with actors and they say, well, we do this all the time, you know, kind of imagine yourself in this world. So that's Ignatian contemplation. It's one of many ways to pray. It's not the only way to pray, but it's the one that the Jesuits are probably best known for. Well, I know you just mentioned actors. Uh, I've, I've communicated to you by email that I've done uh, live uh, first-person storytelling where in the process of preparing a story, I will try to go back to the time and place of the story and try to uh, get in touch with the sights, the sounds, the smells, so that I can find language that I might use to, and here I borrow a term from narrative psychology, I try to find vivid language that I can use to evoke things in terms of those five senses to transport the listeners to that place and to that time. And so for me as a storyteller, but also for those who are engaging as listeners, they're traveling in the way that it sounds as if Ignatian contemplation involves travel. For me, one of the virtues of that, that, that travel or transportation mentally uh, in, the, in the context of storytelling is it can potentially build empathy because I learned to travel into the shoes of other people. I haven't heard you explicitly say this, but I wonder if that is one of the other hoped-for virtues of Ignatian contemplation is that through practicing that kind of travel back into the biblical scene, Catholics or people in general can learn to travel into the scenes, into the experience, into the lives of people very different from themselves. That's a great, you know, I, in all my years as a Jesuit, I've never heard it quite put that way. That's very profound. It is an empathy for the people in the, uh, in the, in the gospel passages. You know, we believe that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, I mean, Christ is alive through the Holy Spirit, right? And, it's a living God, and so you're 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 in touch with God in some way in the prayer. Um, so yeah, so for example, you know, like when you go back into uh, the Gospels and you see you see the disciples completely misunderstanding Jesus, like regularly. One of the things, you know, as you're talking that I was thinking about was if you imagine yourself, you know, like let's say you imagine Jesus stilling the storm, and the disciples don't they can't believe it. You can have some empathy and say, well, of course they wouldn't believe it. How could, you know, who, who could kind of comprehend this stuff going on around them, right? Or when he, he, you know, is raised from the dead, they have a hard time understanding it. And that, you know, there's a certain empathy. But I think it's, it's more that you, you make the story your own, right? And so when, when you're in, uh, you know, a gospel scene that, in a sense, you've imagined, it's not simply, here's the point. Like if I invited you into that kind of prayer, Michael, can I call you Michael? Is that okay? Of course, of course. Yeah. If I invited you into that kind of prayer, 
and let's say you were imagining yourself like at the nativity scene and you had this insight. Let's just make something up. The insight is that, wow, it was really hard for Mary and Joseph during the nativity scene. I never thought about that, you know, how it's kind of this just, it's just difficult, right? And so there's a kind of insight into their lives that, that helps make the story, you know, your own, basically. That's different than me telling you in a homily or in a book, Mary and Joseph had it hard. That, that's, that's something. So it, it really kind of personalizes it, and it enables you to encounter the scripture, uh, you know, on your own. And, and we trust in the Jesuits and in Christian life that, that that insight is something that God is kind of giving you, you know, for a reason. So it's, it's, but but what, I'm, what, what I'm wondering is if that process might generalize so that not only you develop insight from traveling to the nativity scene and making it your own, but then when you see the family separated at our southern border, yep. you're better able to transport yourself into their experience and gain insight about what they're going through. Yes, because prayer should always change you. And, and it, it can't just be about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Absolutely. And, if, and, and usually, I mean, I would say almost always, it increases people's empathy and love because it's, it's really hard to spend time in scripture. For example, that scripture. Look, you know, we've, I think I said this on the last time, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph were refugees, period. And so was Jesus, you know, for a time. And, but, but here's the point. Here's the point. I think that those insights are so much more powerful when they are, when they, when they're your own insights. Right. That's what I'm saying. So, so, so Michael, you know, you could read that in a book, you know, Jesus, Mary and Joseph were refugees. When you have that kind of aha moment in your prayer, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. It just, it just hits people differently. And it's, it, I'm sure there's something in there about teaching. I'm sure a teaching, you know, when the person actually understands it for their own, for, for, them, for themselves, right? It's probably more powerful, those aha moments, than if they just read it in a book. So that's the idea in the prayer. So I want to ask a question about Luke 15. Oh my gosh, you better tell me what it is. Well, <laughs> so, I'm not Protestant. So I don't know that that well. What is Luke 15? So, um, so I, and I have to confess, uh, even though I grew up grew up Protestant, I came across this because I saw it in an online meme. Um, <laughs> and I'll get back. I'll get to the point of the meme in a second. Yeah. But uh, Luke 15 is the the parable, I suppose, uh, of Jesus. It's, um, I'm actually I'm looking at it in the newer international version. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And the, this meme was connecting this to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement where the idea is, um, yes, of course, the 99 lives of those uh, other sheep matter in this sort of all lives matter way, but they're not the ones in danger. And it's OK uh, to, to, to focus on that one. I, I wonder if you if you 
I think that that's uh, an appropriate application of Luke 15. Yeah, that's brilliant, actually, because that's brilliant. Because it's not that Jesus, it's not that the shepherd hates the other 99 sheep or doesn't care about the other 99 sheep. It's just that the, the one sheep needs more attention. I think that's pretty brilliant, actually. I'll tell you, can I tell you a quick story? Please, please. Uh, I, so I worked, as, as I think you know, uh, in East Africa for two years with refugees in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And so one day I was taking a, I don't know where I was going, uh, but I was taking a drive outside of, Ni- not a pleasure drive, but I was going outside of Nairobi. Uh, and I was uh, sort of near the Rift Valley. So there's lots of kind of steep cliffs and all sorts of things. So this is a true story. And so I'm driving. I'm a Jesuit at the time and uh, driving. And this sheep, I wasn't going very fast, runs across the road. I'm in this little Jeep, zips across the road. Okay. And there's a lot of shepherds around and sheep, you know, the Maasai people. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're pastoral people and they're, they're sheep herders and goat herders and cow herders. Anyway, this young Maasai uh, adolescent zips across the road and the sheep goes down a, into a ravine and the Maasai boy or a young man, uh, he's probably like 12, 13, follows him down the ravine. And I look up on the hillside and there's a flock of sheep. And I actually say to myself, <laughs> without, without thinking about it, I said, what's he doing? Why is he leaving the, the herd to go for the one sheep? And I thought, oh my gosh, it's the parable. It's the parable in real life. And, you know, actually, the sheep were just hanging out. That's part of the, the story. I think we forget. They're just hanging out there. Right. And he, he waved to me, went down, got the sheep, walked, walked back up. I said, oh, my gosh, it's the parable in action. And, it, you know, here's the thing. It made total sense. You know, no one would say that that Maasai young man uh, was not interested in the rest of his flock. I mean, that's crazy. Of course, he's interested in the rest of his flock. But absolutely, they needed that sheep needed attention. And, you know, you're, it was funny. It's very moving as you're talking, you know, George Floyd, people like George Floyd and Eric Garner and Breonna Taylor, and they need our attention right now. So I think it's a brilliant uh, use of the parable. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm going to like deepen a little bit. Sure. In the parable, uh, it's, also a, it's also a source of rejoicing, right? And so, so, so can we also listen to the parable, not in just in the sense of what we should be doing, because Jesus says you should be doing this. And by the way, one of the things, I'm sorry, you got me going on this parable. One of the things that I love about this parable is that he's, he's presuming the language is, doesn't he do this? So right. he's telling them something they already know. It's not like he should do this. Of course, you all know he's saying, doesn't this, doesn't the shepherd do this? There's this great rejoicing. And so, if we look at it from an even deeper point of view, that, that, that we should be rejoicing over the Black Lives Matter movement because it is focused on these people who are, you know, who need help. So that's, that's the thing I think that is, is really sorely overlooked. It should be, I mean, look at, look, I, I'm sorry to go on. I mean, look at, look at someone like John Lewis again, our yeah. mutual hero. His life was a cause for rejoicing. Right. What he was able to do was so, along with other people, right, many other people, men and women, was so joyful in the end that, you know, his, his, the, the, the end, you know, his, his funeral and, and those, those weeks were just, just incredible. 
So that's part of the story too. Can we see these movements and these desires to, to care for people who are on the margins as, as, as things that are going to make us joyful? And I think we miss that a lot. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Father James Martin for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on Father Jim or the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see links to relevant information. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you have three options. You can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review, or to offer feedback more privately, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To offer financial support for Tatter, you can find Tatter at Patreon and become a sponsor there. Although I want to emphasize that if you are a current student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support, so please do not make a pledge. But for everyone else, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.